0: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, everyone. It's you here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives... That they had brought to life well if so then look no further history of everything is just the right podcast for you it's available on spotify pandora and anywhere else that you get your podcast from join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be
2: it began long ago two young boys in an american town riding their bikes to school and little league practice over the years the boys became fast friends united in their love for stories where things would go horribly wrong. Pour yourself a strong beverage and buckle up. You're in the shallow end with Schneppley and Tom.
1: So right before we start recording this episode, Kat is trying to con Lindsay and Nan into going in on a uh, real estate deal with us.
3: <laughs> what I liked about it is how how you sort of backed into it like this no big deal. You said, oh, oh yeah, uh, before I forget... <laughs> <laughs> And I thought you were going to say something like, remember to send me that PDF file on the thing. And it was, do you want to buy a house with Yeah, that?
2: I
0: just thought you might like it. That's
1: uh-huh. all. Yeah. yeah. She vet Kat found a, uh, a a property that uh, she thought would be really cool to live in like part of the year while we travel instead of renting an apartment. And, and I understand that makes some, some good economic sense. It's a good strategy. But uh, I didn't. Linz, I'm sorry. I didn't know she'd try to drag you into this too.
0: You should see the rosemary that's growing in the backyard. It's so beautiful. And you can imagine it's very fragrant.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm looking at the
3: photos now and uh, I'm not gonna lie to you. That's that is some kind of gorgeous. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Live yeah. with us. Live
3: with us. <laughs> yeah. Somehow we'd be able to write the whole thing off, couldn't we? If we if we turned it into the yeah, corporate retreat. The shallow end headquarters box of oddities. Yeah. I think that's yeah. there's
1: uh there's some potential there. Just try and audit us you irs (laughs) bastards i'll check with our tax strategist or i would if we had one
0: i'm giddy that you even like it
1: (laughs) oh it's way cool it's gorgeous well listen uh guys i'm gonna jump right into a story here and this one is about uh a very very bad man (laughs) He, he was a bad man his name was troy leon gregg and he was the first condemned individual whose death sentence was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court after the court's decision in the Furman v. Georgia case, which invalidated all previously enacted death penalty laws in the U.S.,
3: You make it sound like there's anyone in America who doesn't know what Furman versus Georgia is. Yeah,
1: I don't know what it is either, but it has something to do with the death penalty.
3: You would have been such a shitty lawyer. I could just see you standing up. You know, Your Honor, I have absolutely no idea what case law is here, but
1: don't you think that my client should just go free? (laughs) Look, he's wearing sensible slacks. How much of a threat can a man wearing sensible slacks be? I ask you. And the blazer. Look at that blue blazer. Would a criminal wear a blazer? I would argue not. I rest my case, Your Honor. I rest rest my case. Right. And then I'd sit down. and put my feet <laughs> up on the desk. Uh huh. Light a cigar. Sure.
0: Did, were you Were you telling a? Oh a
1: tale? yeah, a story yeah. yeah. Okay. So anyway, on November twenty first in nineteen seventy three. Greg attempted to rob a couple of guys, Fred Edward Simmons and Bob Durwood, uh, or Durwood Moore, and uh, he was going to steal their car. The two victims had picked up Greg and a young companion while hitchhiking in Florida. That young companion's name was uh, Floyd Ralford, in quotes, Sam Allen, who was 16 at the time. (laughs) Floyd Ralford Sam Allen. Yep. Yeah, they, okay. they traveled about 240 miles north of Miami, and the car they were in broke down. State police took Simmons and more to a car dealer where Simmons just bought a, another car. It was a 1960 Pontiac, and he went back and he picked up Greg and his companion, Sam. A few hours later, they picked up another hitchhiker, and that guy's name was Dennis Weaver. No, not that one. Not that one. Along the way, Cass looking around like, what the hell are you guys talking about? (laughs) Google McLeod. Along the way, Simmons and Moore were getting hammered. They were drinking a lot. And so Greg was driving. And soon they dropped off Weaver at wherever it was he wanted to be dropped off, someplace in South Georgia. And they continued on. At the intersection of Georgia Highway 20 and I-85 in Georgia, they stopped at a rest stop. And Simmons and Moore got out, presumably to, you know, relieve themselves. It was at this point that Greg leaned over to Allen and he said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal their car. And he told Allen to get out of the car. According to court records, and this is Allen's testimony. He said, quote, Greg lay up on the car with a gun in his hand to get a good aim at Simmons and Moore, who were coming back up over the bank. He fired three shots. One of the men fell, the other staggered. Greg then circled around the back of the car, approached the two men, both of whom were lying in a drainage ditch, and he finished them off with a handgun. Yeah. Wow. Pretty heinous. He took their money and whatever contents they had in their pockets. He told Alan to get back into the car, and they drove away. Ultimately, he was apprehended, in fact, pretty quickly, within three days, and he was sentenced to death. And as I said at the beginning of the uh, podcast, it was the first death sentence upheld by the Supreme Court after that aforementioned case that I don't even remember. Furman versus Georgia, of course. Your your Honor. So a few years go by and he's not made a lot of friends. He is not a pleasant guy at all. But on July 28th, 1980, Greg escapes death row with three other condemned murderers from the Georgia State Penitentiary. Holy cow. This was the very first death row breakout in history. In the history of, of, in
3: American history? In American
1: history. Wow. From death row. They broke out of prison by sawing through the prison bars and walking along a narrow ledge several stories up until they reached a fire escape.
0: Well, how did they get a saw?
1: I'm not sure how they did that. I mm-hmm. It wasn't included in any of the information. I, I actually heard a story one time where people used um, an, a, like dental floss and a cleaning abrasive to wear the bars oh, down. like a
0: MacGyver saw. <laughs>
1: kind of like a MacGyver saw. Got it. Yeah. But that would have, I guess, that would have taken years. But then again, when you have years, sure. you might as well be doing something. Might as well use it constructively. So anyway, they get out onto this narrow ledge, which is several stories above the ground. And they, and they inch their way over to a fire escape. Now, they had altered their prisoner pajamas to resemble prison guard uniforms. They then climbed down the fire escape and walked out to the parking lot. And there they were confronted by some real correctional officers. Mm-hmm. And so they said in their pajamas, yeah, we're making some security checks and the real guards went, yeah, okay, and waved them through. There you go. Yep, wearing their prison guard pajamas. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so they get to the parking lot, and they get into a car that somebody had left for them. They, they had this pretty well planned, and they just simply drove away. And the weird thing is, hours went by before anybody noticed that they were gone. And it was only because of something Greg did. It wasn't enough that he got away. He thought it would be a good idea to stop and call a reporter for the Albany Herald to brag about his escape. Good grief. Why he chose the Albany Herald is beyond me, but... Good grief. But that's how the prison found out on the news. Greg, he told, he told the reporter that they broke out because of the inhumane conditions on death row and that he would rather die than stay there, which is, (laughs) which is interesting because he kept appealing his sentence. So anyway, the four escapees, they're feeling pretty good, pretty full of themselves. And they drove North by the next evening. They had made it to, uh, North Carolina. They decided to celebrate their perfect escape by partying at a local biker bar. Now, what happened next is nothing short of poetic. One version of the story goes like this. Greg was drinking very heavily, and things got a little bit out of hand. He spent a good portion of the evening bragging about his escape and how he was famous because he was in the Albany Press, the Albany News. He was mouthing off to everyone in a biker bar um, and then started hitting on the waitress, who was a local person. Of course. She, not surprisingly, rebuked his advances. um, And he got violent and attempted to assault her. He started throwing things at her and calling her names. Now, it's been said that some of the local bikers there took offense to Greg's actions since uh, they were well acquainted with the waitress. They were all local people. Sure. Well, words were exchanged and Greg went out to the parking lot with one of the local bikers. Greg continued to shoot his mouth off, so the biker beat him to death with a (laughs) pipe. The end. Go, biker, go. (laughs) Then the biker and several other locals took Greg's body and dumped it in the lake behind the bar. Yeah. Okay, there's another version. It's slightly different. It's basically the same, but it's a little more detailed. A member of the Outlaws Motorcycle Club, James Cecil Horn, along with one of Greg's fellow escapees, teamed up to do the deed. Oh. This version was a combination of things that led to Greg's violent death. The like uh, local biker was defending the waitress, and the fellow escapee was pissed that he wouldn't shut up and stop calling the press. Fair. Fair. <laughs> So either way, his body ended up in the lake. The local biker was initially charged with murder, and another man named William Flamont or was charged with being an accessory after the fact. Both men's charges were dropped later by a judge due to lack of evidence. The other escapees were found three days later hiding out in a rundown house that was owned by William Flamont. Or Flamant. Hmm. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. And I, I really like, don't care.
0: I like Flamand.
1: It does have a certain je ne sais quoi. What the French call a certain I don't know what. Very nice. <laughs> My source information uh, for this story, Wikipedia, Crime Magazine, and Murderpedia.
0: I'm sorry. Yeah. So he escaped yeah. jail mm-hmm. to avoid the death penalty yeah. and then was... Beaten to death in a parking lot of a bar. <laughs>
1: next night. The very next night. He had, he would have lived longer.
0: Had he stayed in jail. Yeah, if he st- had he on stayed death a- row. on
1: death row. Amazing. Yeah. 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 So he, um, I guess he got his wish in a way. He said he'd rather die than stay there. Well, along yeah. comes a biker with a pipe. I'm trying to figure
3: out why there's a comeuppance. I mean, it's, it's, a, tra- it's a, a tragic story. Mm-hmm. But there's also something very funny about it, and there's also a, you know, buddy, you had this coming kind of thing. Yeah, he definitely had it
0: coming. I I can't say I hate it.
3: No. No, no. Well, I think we should all talk to our pastors or spiritual advisors once this session is done. (laughs) Maybe get to the bottom of why we find such joy in
1: this. (laughs) We need a good cleansing
3: is what we need. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I do
0: have a colonic scheduled, so. Oh well, well,
1: there you go. That,
0: that's oh. the next
1: best thing. I'm I just
0: think. kidding. I don't. Yeah. I've always wanted one though.
1: <clears throat> I've never wanted one. Yeah, no, I don't want one, but I'm glad when I've when I've had one. I've actually had two. Really? Yeah.
0: I'm just really curious about what's up there.
1: Yeah, well, it is interesting. I remember <laughs> the first time I went, I was a little like uh, obviously nervous and apprehensive, and I'd heard a lot about the benef- healthful benefits of of. A high colonic. A high colonic.
3: Which always sounded like a drink to Mm. me. I'll have the high colonic and the lady will have...
0: Right. right. On the rocks, please.
1: (laughs) So I'm in there and I'm all hooked up and stuff. And, uh, you know, the tubes and everything are going. And the woman goes, oh, carrots. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Good night, everybody. And I said,
1: "Uh, hopefully that's... That's the only thing you'll be able to identify. And she said, you wouldn't believe some of the things I've seen. I once saw a Barbie doll shoe. (laughs) Wow. Boy, I'd love to hear the backstory on that one. (laughs) Well, um, she was assuming that probably the person had swallowed it when she was a kid and it just stayed in there. Huh? Like gum. Curious. Some things are hard to shake. Shake wasn't the word I was thinking you were going to (laughs) say.
2: You're in the shallow end with Schneppel and Toff.
3: The Bible makes it clear that Jesus wants us to be armed. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 36, Jesus says, If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. That's good enough for us. We're Christ is King Guns and Ammo, the Christian owned store for all your self defense needs. We've got every make and model handgun and rifle you can dream of and more bullets than Satan has evil lies. Come see our recreation of Da Vinci's The Last Supper with Jesus and his apostles all wearing guns on their hips. Christ is King Guns and Ammo, just off Interstate 4 in Orlando. Look out, Lucifer. This Christian is packing heat.
0: part of the area of media network available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au rezem, revoir my friends. Bye-bye.
2: I'll be seeing you. Caution, objects in this podcast are much closer than they appear. You're in the shallow end with Snegly and Toff.
3: So that uh, that commercial you just heard, uh, as much as I would love to take credit for it, was actually suggested by a listener. Oh, really? Um, who shares who shares my first name <laughs> and even spells it the same way that I do. Uh, Lindsay writes, hey, gang, first of all, I love you guys. I love this podcast and Box and Box of Oddities. A friend referred me to Box of Oddities a couple months ago, and I'm happy to be a devout listener and follower now. I just finished listening to the episode sensible cadaver shoes i love the fake commercials that you guys do and i want to make a suggestion please do a fake commercial for christ is king guns and ammo and in the name of jesus guaranteed used tires and the guns and wedding dresses uh in one store please dear god that would be hilarious a request from one lindsay to another i mean we both spell our names with an a y oh, that's delightful love you guys always flying my freak flag 365 lindsay Hilarious. Yeah. Well, see, there you go. Thank you so much for that suggestion, Lindsay. You might have noticed that we took you up that on That
0: makes three Lindsays because my middle name is
3: Lindsay. That's right. How did I not know it's that? It's spelled
0: differently. But... So
3: you wouldn't be able to detect it. <laughs> did this come up in Cabo after I tried to tell the story the second time? <laughs> Was that a one-too-many-cocktail <laughs> I didn't
1: remember? Every day was a one-too-many-cocktail day there. Yeah, it was kind of, wasn't yeah. it? oh. Actually, it's funny that uh, they mentioned the wedding dress and uh, shooty store. The What was it, <laughs> Kat? We got a message. Uh, somebody sent this to the Box of Oddities instead of the Shallow End. And again, our Shallow End email is lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. It's, uh, if you send it to Box of Oddities, it's just going to get lost in the shuffle, or it, there's a good chance it, it will.
0: We got a message from Kelsey on Instagram.
1: Great name. <laughs> well, it's not Lindsay, but it's close.
0: I wanted to remind Kat, it was Hussey's General Store from the Shallow End's newest podcast, uh, the the store that sold wedding dresses and guns.
1: <laughs> That's in Caribou, Maine, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Hussey's in Caribou, Maine. <laughs> I think it's amazing that uh, you can mention that and uh, somebody will correct you on it.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I couldn't remember what it was called. I was like Scuddies or something. Yeah, and yeah. now immediately someone wrote and was like, It's Hussies, you hussy.
3: <laughs> Isn't that perfect? Don't you love that? Thanks, Kelsey. Love your name. What about you, sir? So just yesterday, and I mean maybe 24 hours ago, I was driving from Tucson to Phoenix. With my sister and she was talking about the podcast and how much she likes the podcast. And I was saying, you know, it's interesting because sometimes coming up with these stories, they fall into your lap or you have to pull teeth to do research to find
1: it, them. it's that way, isn't it? I mean, it's one extreme or the other. Yeah, it's, it's like a feast or famine.
3: So very offhandedly, because um, she is very much uh, a historian of Arizona. And I said, kind of mostly kidding there must be some kind of story that you know about Arizona history that would be a great shallow end topic. And she thought for about 7 or 8 seconds and then and then said, "Oh, well there is the Walnut Grove Dam disaster of 1890." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "What?" And she said, "Oh, yeah." And so she starts telling me the story and By the end of it, I'm just staring. She's driving. I'm in the passenger seat. I'm just staring at her like, you got to be freaking kidding me. Send me this story. Send me this story. (laughs) So by the time I landed in Burbank about two hours later in my email box is the story that I'm now going to share with you. And I like to call it. The 1890 Walnut
1: Grove Dam Disaster. I like it. It has a nice ring to it. It sounds vaguely familiar. Doesn't it? Oh, that's right. Your sister said that that was what it was called. No wonder the vague
3: familiarity. (laughs) So uh, this is 1890 in what was then the territory of Arizona, because you uh, history buffs will remember that Arizona didn't become a state until 1912. Valentine's Day, 1912, oh, if you want to be specific. Oh. So Arizona settlers were pouring into this part of the state. And as is much of, of Western America at this time, mining is a huge you know, source of income. And people see dollar signs and are discovering gold and silver and copper and all kinds of things. So they end up, for mining purposes, realizing we really need a dam in this part of of the state. This is the northern part of Arizona, not far from what is now Prescott. It's Yavapai County. And they start building this dam. And for whatever reason, the construction stops and starts and it's it's kind of muddling along and they actually end up starting over it takes a number of superintendents to get this thing built and as you can imagine people start of you know they 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 have money then they run out of money then they they have money they mm. run out and finally it falls to two brothers who live in new york their names are wells and dewitt bates don't you love that nice. wells and dewitt Bates, They end up buying this gold mine in southern Yavapai County, and they file 63 claims for mining rights. And they realize that this dam is really crucial to their success because they need to build a reservoir and a diversion dam for this mining operation. This is on the Hassiampa River in northern Arizona. So they finally find the investors and they start construction on this dam for for what turns out to be the last time, meaning they actually succeed in building this thing. This is in 1886. But then they realize they could make more sure money by selling stock in this company. And pretty much right away they start figuring out how to cut costs <laughs> in, in, building, uh, in building this sure. dam. Well, that makes sense. Your business longevity depends on it, uh, to say nothing of the responsibility of everybody living <laughs> downriver from, from this dam. <laughs> but like I said, as soon as they can find shortcuts, they do. And so when they're offered a choice of, well, we could do it the right way, or we could do it the really cheap way. It's going to be dangerous and might not work, but it sure would save money. They would say, yeah, let's, let's save the money. So as you know, one of the keys to, to any dam is the spillway, which is you know what allows uh, water to bypass the dam. It guarantees the integrity right. of the dam. Okay. Right, right, right. So they decide, yeah, we could do the spillway the right way. But boy, look at the money we'd save if we do this small, cheap little spillway. I'm sure it'll be fine. So sure enough, that's what they do. So the dam is, was never really a solid structure. It was, they built a timber trestle on a, like an axis of this dam, and they just keep raising that trestle. As they start filling this area with rock. Oh, my God. And the, the heart of the dam is actually broken granite and it's being dumped from rail cars, wagons, and it's just loose granite upon loose granite upon loose granite. And they get it up to about 100 feet tall and think, OK, I, I guess this is this is what we want. This is this is the right height. So then they cover all that in what we would now call concrete. And then for waterproofing, so this is on the side of the dam where, where this, this water is going to rest, they do timber, tar paper over the timber, oh, and two coats, two coats of paraffin paint. Paraffin paint? Two coats of paraffin paint over tar paper, over timber, over loose granite. What could possibly go wrong? Now most of us would say, well, okay, you've done that on the side that is going to be have have water against it. What about the other side of the dam? That all that loose rock. Ah oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> there'll there'll never be any water over the top of the dam. Yeah. So they, they don't waterproof it. There's no waterproofing oh on that other side of the of the dam, which faces essentially downstream. Oh. No protection at all. Now, furthermore, the Walnut Grove Dam, unlike dams we build today, you know, most dams built are in like a semicircle that go toward the headwaters. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That modern design is actually, and I, I only learned this in researching this story, a relatively ancient uh technology it's called a roman arch because roman architecture they realized thousands of years ago that you could support tremendous amounts of weight in building with that roman arch and so when you bring that over to dam design it does the same does the same thing you can push the water back and the structural integrity of the dam is much much higher But even at the outset, because they didn't do that, they built this dam as just a flat, straight line. Just straight across. (laughs) And even engineers back then, in fact, there was a group of engineers called the Technical Society of the Pacific Coast, and they had come out publicly saying, this thing is a mistake. You don't want to do this. (laughs) But again, these brothers back in New York who aren't even out here, to supervise the construction of this dam. They're doing everything, you know, via uh, like uh, telegraph for communicating back to New York because it's the late 1800s. And other critics were saying, hey, this concrete and lumber, this this is a terrible <laughs> idea. The tar paper's fine. <laughs> but But not the lumber and the rock. And to make matters worse, they're hiring unskilled workers who are— <sighs> actually spending more time drinking in saloons and gambling, you know, in gambling joints than they are in the construction. So it's February of 1890. And now there are three days of heavy rain that start falling, plus snow runoff from north of this site. And the reservoir is now starting to fill up. Now, there's a guy, and I believe he is actually the fifth superintendent that was hired to oversee this dam. This is the guy in charge. His name is Thomas H. Brown. And he's watching this water level rise, and he's, he knows that there's more snowmelt coming. And he knows that there are at least 200 lives on the other side mm. of this dam. Mm. There are at least 200 people that if this dam collapses, they're in real trouble because a number of, of miners, construction workers, prospectors, and thinking back to this time in, in the territory of Arizona history, a number of workers from China mm-hmm. and Mexico who were cheap labor. And so the respect for those people was nil. They were just considered expendable. Oh. So, a number of those people are downstream from this dam. So, Superintendent Brown finally realizes Houston, we have a problem. And he gets one of his employees, a guy named Dan Burke, to go down on horseback and ride down and tell people there's possible trouble here. You really need to leave your house until we make sure this dam's not going to burst. It's a twenty-two mile ride that he wants Dan Burke to make. Now the problem is twofold. For one, Brown is a notorious drunk. Oh no! Oh, good. Number two, Superintendent Brown pays Brown in cash before oh. he s- he sets off on this trip and says, "Now, Dan, you will not stop on the road. This is too important." And Dan says, No, Mr. Brown, I promise I won't. Mm -hmm. Burke gets up on his horse, heads out. Where do you think he heads? Right to the bar. Very good, JG. (laughs) Right to the first saloon he comes across. And he gets
1: so drunk, he's passed out. You know what they used to call whiskey back in those days? There were a lot of really cool slang terms for whiskey in those days. One was giggle juice. Oh, I love that. Another was. Pop skull, okay, and I don't remember the others. Well, it doesn't matter. That was mm-hmm. a
0: great story. Thank you. Yeah,
1: <clears throat> giggle juice. Oh, I remember That's the cool. other one. Ob oh, joyful.
3: Oh, I like that. Yeah. I'll have another glass of ob joyful, please. <laughs> so sure enough, it's the middle of the night and February twenty second, eighteen ninety. This dam collapses <sighs> because the water has done exactly what they didn't take into account all of this water is now spilling over Mm -hmm. the top of the dam down onto the other side that wall which is just rock with no protection whatsoever to keep the moisture out of that rock and the thing freaking explodes it makes so much noise that people tens of miles away hear that explosion and think that it's, it's like a gunpowder or a mining explosion. It literally shakes the earth. And four billion gallons <sighs> of water, wow. four billion gallons go crashing down this river. So the dam is just completely obliterated. And now you have four billion gallons of water in the middle of the night carrying all that rock <sighs> with it and it it's just like a giant scrub brush and it's a hundred feet tall oh my god this wall of water is a hundred feet tall because that's how high the dam had been before it burst okay. so this 100 foot tall four billion gallon wave just starts taking out everything in its path including workers from mexico mm. the the sheep herders the miners the Chinese uh, laborers, this entire community of these poor, what we would now call blue-collar laborers, just get wiped out. Now, by the time it reaches the town of Wickenburg, which is 60 miles downstream, oh God, Ooh. this wall of water is still 40 feet high. Wow. 60 miles after it burst through the dam at 100 feet high, it's only lowered to 40 feet high. And because it's the middle of the night, one of these weird phenomenon took place, which is phosphorescent light. You've seen that usually in in the ocean. You'll see phosphorus at, at nighttime. So not only is this wall of water pummeling this entire area, But it's now got this creepy phosphorescent glow to it that you can see from miles away. And people are looking at it and they hear what sounds like thunder and they look and they see a light in the distance. And that had to be almost like an otherworldly experience. In those days, how would you
1: rationalize that with the knowledge you had?
3: With the knowledge you had, I would think you would think this must be the the end of the the world. world. These are, you know, there are monsters coming from hell to, to devour our town. It was so tragic that the number of people killed, they located bodies for years. Wow. Years later, they would still be finding bodies. Uh. One even uh, wasn't discovered until 33 years after this explosion. 33 years? 33 years, they would still find a body that was a a victim of this. There were some really quirky instances, too, of how people were saved by this. One of them, a woman who lived downstream from this dam, who wakes up just a couple of hours before this and thinks to herself, something's not right. I got to get the hell out of here. So she walks from her house wearing just like a nightgown and a house coat and shoes that she managed to get on, and she saved herself. She
0: just had a feeling?
3: She just had a feeling something wasn't right. Wow. And she came back days later, and her house was completely gone, just scrubbed off the face of the earth. Another miner, M-I-N-E-R, he was of age, who was known (laughs) for having this wild mane of hair, and he's being washed down by this this 100-foot wave of churning water and rock, and his hair actually gets caught in a tree branch, and he's able to pull himself up from his hair and save his life just because his hair got caught on a tree branch. Wow. So the logical question is, okay, what the hell happened to Dan Burke, the guy who was supposed to warn
1: everybody and yeah, I was hoping he went to a saloon in the path of this incoming tsunami. <clears throat> nope. Well, Dan
3: Burke is actually found and arrested by the sheriff of Yavapai County at the time was a guy named Bucky O'Neill. And Bucky O'Neill, a number of books have been written about this guy. He is one of the true pioneers of Arizona history. He was one of Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. Wow. Um, he's actually immortalized in a statue in front of the Prescott Courthouse to this day. He also has
1: a great name for a person who lived during that age. Yeah.
3: Bucky was a, uh, it, it's not a shallow in story by any means, but Google the name Bucky O'Neill and you'll see what an amazing man this guy was. So Bucky is understandably pissed as hell. <laughs> he had ridden down after this, this tragedy along the riverbank trying to save people, trying to find people and just do whatever he could. Again, this was before the term first responder was born, but Bucky O'Neill was a first responder. So he finds Dan Burke and arrests him Nice, and tries to charge him with manslaughter because if Dan Burke had done his job, some of these people probably still would have been killed, but scores could have been saved. And, The equivalent of a DA at the time, the district attorney, ultimately says to Bucky, you know what, we can't really charge him because this kind of death uh, due to negligence isn't really manslaughter. So Dan Burke gets set free a few months later and actually is gutsy enough to write a letter to the newspaper saying... You know, I really think people should not be so judgy when it comes to me. And it ends up blowing up in his face, and now people are even more upset at him, and he ends up just getting out of Dodge. He just leaves the area and is never heard from again because he sees exactly how hated he wow. is for very obvious reasons.
1: Yeah, and reasons. this is a time when vigilante justice was uh, not uncommon. Oh, hell Yes
3: hell yes it's amazing he wasn't uh that he wasn't
0: vigilante
3: vigilante to death because uh actually when he got released that day the first thing he did was go to a bar and start (laughs) Uh, drinking okay so he was not a popular Mm -hmm. guy so that is the 1890 walnut grove dam disaster i got this from westernmuseum.org prescott arizona history blog and uh, MinerDiggins.com and, of course,
0: Your Wikipedia.
3: And, of course, my sister. Well done, Lisa. Good save, Kat. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you're you. You're welcome. You saved me from a very chilly Thanksgiving lunch, <laughs> I can tell you that much.
1: <laughs> that reminded me of uh, something that I heard. And I, and I know this has been disputed by authorities, but the rumor is out there that when they were constructing what was Hoover Dam, they had to build it in sections because it was poured concrete. And they had to do it in chunks because concrete, when it's uh, that much of it, it gives off a great deal of heat. And so they couldn't pour it all at once. It would never cure. So they did it in these segments. And while this was being done, while they were pouring the concrete into these cubes, essentially, uh, many people lost their footing and fell in. And they just continued filling up the cube. I have heard that
3: so many times that I have to believe it's true.
0: I've, I've heard that it's just rumors. Come on,
3: Cat. Yeah, she's such a skeptic. <laughs> you know, if you're going to be this whole, we can only tell the truth on this podcast. <laughs> I'm not so sure I'm your guy.
0: <laughs> All right. That's, Nicely that's, done, both of you. That's fa-
1: fascinating lens. Fascinating story.
3: It makes it only uh, your, your point about Hoover Dam. I'm just trying to think of the logistics of how you would begin to pull somebody out
1: of that much mm. concrete. I, I don't know how you'd do it. They say that there are human remains throughout that uh, that yeah. dam, and it didn't have anything to do with the mob in Vegas. Right. They dumped all their bodies in Lake Mead. That's what the uh,
3: proper etiquette is for disposing of property.
0: Or behind a bar, I hear.
1: Or behind mm-hmm. a bar. That yeah. too. Thanks for hanging out with us again on The Shallow End, everybody. You can reach us at lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. And
3: we appreciate those of you who uh, who did that. And send story ideas. We love that. Send commercial ideas. Hell, we'll take anything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next time. Thank you for hanging out with us. Make good choices. Your life might depend on it, damn
2: it. So concludes another episode of The Shallow End with Schnebley and Toff. We thank you for listening. Oh, be a dear, would you? Please subscribe to this podcast. Give these boys a five-star rating and think of something nice to say, even if you have to make something up. And visit us online at shallowendpodcast.com. All content copyright 2022. Misuse of this podcast may result in serious injury or even death. Follow all label directions. This offer void in Fort Kent, Maine and Tucson, Arizona. And parts of Orlando. Don't ask. Just trust us. Okay, gotta go.